So, my name's Brian Bradley. I'm one of the pastors here at Outward. Uh, I spend most of my time on that half of the building with the, uh, with the kids, overseeing the children's ministry and the new uh, you know, junior high ministry we have going on and, and all that kind of stuff. But I'm happy to get up here and to, um, to bring the word this morning. And I, I hope this is useful and, and helpful for some of you or, or all of you. Uh, I know this has been just super helpful for me to, to study and, and look into this week. And so uh, let me pray just real quick for our sermon, and then, uh, and then we'll get going. Jesus, thank you so much uh, for coming to us through your word to, uh, to speak to our hearts, to convict us of sin, uh, to encourage us, uh, God, to build us up and, and, to, uh, and to just teach us in your ways. God, I pray that this morning as we come to your word, God, that we would have soft hearts, uh, that, that we would... Uh, have open minds, be willing to receive what you have for us. God, would you help us to put aside maybe preconceived ideas or hardness of heart that may obstruct us from hearing your good word this morning. I pray, Lord, that, uh, that you would speak through me, that my words would not be heard, but yours would be. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I, I have the incredible joy to talk to us uh, this morning about sexual immorality. Everybody's favorite topic. I'm like, yes, I want to do that one. Um, and so we're, we're just going to dive right in. I'm like, I have no idea how to intro sexual immorality. See, this one time, you know, start with some story or something, and I was like, never mind. Uh, for the sake of my wife, I will skip that and go right into uh, what we're talking about. So we're going to be primarily in Proverbs chapter 7. I love this passage. It's, uh, it's a passage that, is, that has been so helpful for me. It's, it's one that I have taken many guys to in one-on-one conversations uh, who are struggling with any kind of sexual immorality and that sort of thing. This is just, in, just incredibly practical. Like the book of Proverbs is, it's just incredibly practical. So I first want to point out that, that you know, much of Proverbs in this passage in particular was written by King Solomon. Um, and, and just to kind of have a context of, of who's talking to us about sexual immorality, this is not a goody-two-shoes speaking from inexperience going, well, just avoid sex. It's, it's icky and gross. Um, but he's speaking from a ton of experience. Uh, in fact, in 1 Kings 11... It says, now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughters of, or the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sid- Sidonian, and Hittite women. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Uh, as Matt pointed out to me as we were talking about this, this is not... Uh, like I had a girlfriend in junior high and then I had a girlfriend in high school. This is, I have girlfriends in this country and I have girlfriends in this country and I have girlfriends in this country. Uh, like th- this guy's defining his sexual immorality by zip code, right? That's the, the extent to which he has explored this. He's giving this advice not from inexperience but from a position of regret. Uh, I, I think like an addict at the end of his life, looking and saying, man, I wish I knew what I know now. I never would have gone to that party. I never would have hung out with those friends. I never would have tried this. I never would have gone for that. I never would have moved there. He's speaking from that kind of experience, that kind of regret. 
So we'll go right into chapter 7. He starts out by saying, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Now, I, I want to explain just a, a little bit um, what's going on here and, and kind of explain as we go along. So, we know that the Bible as a book is probably something we ought to listen to, right? Of all the books out there, uh, like should I listen to Harry Potter or should I listen to the Bible, we think, okay, the Bible is a book of wisdom, I should listen to that. And then within the, the broad context of the Bible, there's Proverbs, which we know is condensed wisdom. And, and I would say, man, of all of the Bible, Proverbs I should listen to. I should really take this in and soak it in. And now he takes a moment to say, now listen to this, right? If you're not going to listen to all of the Bible, if you're not even going to listen to all of Proverbs, listen to this one. Hear me out here. This is like, um, like the teacher in school who says, uh, Mr. Bradley, you may want to pay attention. This one might be on the final, right? I survived by those. I'm like, oh, yeah, yep, this one's going down. You write that down, right? It's a clue. This one matters. This one counts. I'll ignore the rest, but hear me on this, he says. Now, I also want to explain that we have to understand what this is. This is a father writing to his son, or, or likely this, this teacher writing to his students kind of relationship. Um, and so this is going to be very specifically from a man to young men. Okay, so this is not because it doesn't apply to women. It's because this is written to young men, and so all or most of these principles that we see can certainly apply both ways. This is just not the genre here. That's not how this is written. We wouldn't expect a Boy Scout manual to be addressing girls, right? Uh, th this is how this is written. So th this applies to both men and women. It's easy to see how this goes both ways. This particular passage um, is a, a father writing to his sons or, or a teacher writing to his students, um, um, an older man to younger men. Okay, and then as we get down to verse 5 there, uh, he says, um, forbidden women, or the forbidden woman, and I just want to broaden that definition as we get into this. Uh, the forbidden woman could be any number of things, right? It may be someone that's not your spouse, right? Uh, having sex with someone who's not your spouse would certainly fall into that. This may be uh, probably the broadest area where we see this in our world today is with pornography. Uh, that certainly falls into this category. That's the forbidden woman uh, is found in porn. Uh, and, and again, of course, for women, this, this may be a, another man that's not your spouse. This may be um, porn or, or any number of other, you know, forbidden women, forbidden men. You can kind of let your uh, imagination fill in the blanks there, okay? And I want to be clear as we get into this, there's a lot of warning here against sexual immorality. The, many people have heard and, and, and many people have even taught uh, or, or understood that the Bible is anti-sex in general, and that's simply not true, right? The, the Bible is not anti-sex. Uh, the Bible is actually very pro-sex. 
within the context that God created it for. And so this is not that we should avoid sex always, you know, in whatever situation. In fact, just a couple chapters earlier, he writes in, in um, chapter 5, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? There's a celebration of sex here and throughout Scripture. Uh, it, it doesn't shy away from that. God created sex. It's one of His creations. He's given it to us as a gift to be enjoyed. And the problem is that we have uh, elevated sex to a godlike status. We have replaced God on the throne with sex. We will sacrifice anything in worship of this idol. That's where the problem lays, and that's what Solomon needs to address here with his young men is don't fall into this trap. There is a proper place and way for sex, and it's wonderful and it's glorious. It's one of the great joys um, that God has given to us, but that, like anything that God has given us, can be twisted and distorted. We can begin to worship the creation rather than the Creator. Now let's read on in verse 6. Hopefully we have some context for where we're going here. For at the window of my house I have looked out through the lattice. I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. So Solomon is setting up a story here. This is kind of unique within Proverbs, where instead of just little two-line snippets of wisdom and information, he's actually going to tell us a, uh, a longer story. He's going to use the story to illustrate his points. That's part of why I love this so much. So he says, I'm going to tell a story. Let, let me explain what I saw one time. And he says, I, I saw a young man lacking sense. And I, as I was studying and looking into that a little bit, it actually says, um, uh, like the literal translation would be, a young man lacking heart. And in that, you know, context, cultural, and, and, and that kind of cultural understanding, uh, your heart is where your intelligence or wisdom lay. And so we could translate this maybe more appropriately to a young man without brains, right? I saw a young man, he had no brains, and here's what he's about to do, right? This is what he's setting up for us. Essentially, what Solomon is doing here is he's kind of people watching. Does anybody enjoy that? Anybody enjoy people watching? I, lo I love doing this, right? I, I love just like kind of sitting at a distance and, and watching things play out. So, I don't know if this has anything to do with anything, but it's a funny story. So, um, I, when, I was, when I was, I don't know, maybe a teenager or something like that, my family and I, we went to the beach, the Oregon coast. We love that. And we go to this beach, and it's like the parking lot is up on a cliff, and then you hike down to the beach. And we, we went, we played on the beach, and, and then we were done. We're cold and, and wet because it's rainy. It's the Oregon beach, and the wind's howling and all that kind of stuff. And so, we're like, okay, we're done. We go up to the car. Just as we're getting in the car, we're like, oh, wait, we can't leave. We can't leave. You know what we saw was a young family with little kids getting their $5 Walmart kite out of the back of the car. We're like, oh, we got to watch. Because you know this is going to end poorly. We've all been there. This is like a rite of passage for young families at the Oregon coast. And so we see them. They're all excited. The kids are excited. I know this exposes what a terrible person I am. 
um, from my youth. <laughs> uh, but they're setting this up like, oh, it's so exciting. And then we, we just wait in the car and we're like, oh, man, this is going to be so bad. <laughs> we shouldn't watch, but we have to. Uh, so they walk down to the beach. And of course, the wind is like hurricane force winds, rain pounding. The kids are excited. Yeah, the kite. And so the dad gets it all ready and the kid's hanging onto the string and he lets go of the kite and it just snaps in the wind. And just, you know, the little crossbar just breaks in half. The thing goes blowing down the beach. The kids are crying. We're like, oh, so sad. Um, but we've all been there. <clears throat> it was absolutely hilarious and terrible. Um, unfortunately, I, I have to confess that uh, <laughs> my own family is not, um, uh, is not, you know, apart from this rite of passage. So we took our kids to the beach the first time to fly a kite. And I'm like, now see, I learned, I've seen this, I'm buying the $7 kite. Uh, not to fight this ought to hold up, and it didn't. It was the exact same thing. Kids are crying. It's awful. <clears throat> so anyway, <laughs> this is what Solomon's doing. He's people-watching this, like, tragedy that's about to transpire, uh, and he's just kind of observing what's going to happen. So he's watching uh, this simple. He perceives among the youth a young man with no brains. Here he goes. Verse 8, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. Okay, so our brainless young man, what's he doing? He's just out for an evening stroll. He's not up to anything bad. He's just thinking, I'm just going to go for a walk. There's, there's no harm in that. I'm just, just a nice little evening stroll through town. This is, this is no big deal. But he makes two major mistakes, location and time. You see what he says there? That um, passing along the street near her corner, right? Near her corner, taking the road to her house. I'm just going to take a walk down this street. This looks like a nice street. And, and the other area is, is the time of day. You see that he says, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. The Bible often uses darkness uh, as symbolism for sin, it, it often uses darkness to show the difference between sin, which is, uh, which is at night, in the dark, in secret, and then um, righteousness, or Jesus, which is the light. It's in broad daylight, right? The, it shows that compare and contrast. And so he goes to the wrong place, and he goes at the wrong time. This, this relates to so many sins. This chapter 7, I've taken guys to and, and had coffee and, and explained not just for sins of sexual immorality, but all kinds of sins. These principles apply so broadly. You know, what is that sin that you continue to go to? What is the thing that, that you just can't seem to get a hold on? Often, there is, there's a place and there's a time where we engage in those things. Right? If we could identify the street, if we could identify the corner and avoid that place, if we could identify the time of day and avoid that time of day, we might avoid a good deal of temptation. It's not complicated. It's so simple. Right? If alcoholism is your thing, if, if you struggle uh, you know, with the temptation to drink and to drink beyond what's appropriate to get drunk, then going to the bar after work might be the wrong street, right? That might be the literal wrong place to go and the wrong time to do that. And, and maybe if overeating is your thing, 
maybe don't go to the buffet, right? Like, there's like literal places we can avoid to avoid certain temptations and times of day that we can, uh, we can avoid this. This is wisdom that just is, is so broad that's so useful. And let's, uh, let's keep going. One, one more comparison I just want to make is as we look through Scripture and we see sin often happens in the dark. It, it happens at night, right? Um, th- that time of day, the secrecy, the, the darkness, that's where sin thrives, right? Th- there's just something interesting that, that I was thinking about as I was looking at that. Jesus is the light. He does his, his deeds in broad daylight. He's not trying to hide anything. In fact, he gets in a lot of trouble because he's healing people in the middle of the day, and, and they're saying, you shouldn't do that, right? But Jesus just is that way. But when Jesus goes to the cross, when Jesus is nailed to the cross to die, to bleed for our sins in our place as our substitute, it goes dark. The earth goes dark. It's the middle of the day, but the sun is blacked out. There's so much sin and pain and hurt that's being laid on Jesus that it blots out the sun and for three hours while he bleeds out and dies, it's dark. Isn't that interesting? Let's keep going. Verse 10, we go on with our story here. And behold, the woman meets him. It's kind of like, and behold, like big surprise. Right? He's going down her street, going near her corner. That's where she's been seen. And big surprise, there she is. Right? She comes out and meets him. It's not much of a surprise. She's dressed as a prostitute. She's wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and in every corner, she lies in wait. You see, this young man, our young brainless man, has probably heard of her before. Maybe he's seen her uh, during the day while he's going about town doing his thing. He's kind of seen her down there, you know, kind of doing her thing, trying to seduce men. Is it curiosity that takes him down that path? Is it desire? I, I don't know. It, it doesn't really say, but something causes him to just wander down that way. And she is not new to this, right? It says her feet are never at home. She is loud and wayward. She's here, she's there, she's in the street, she's in the market, every corner, right? This isn't her first rodeo. She's been here, she's done this. She knows what she's doing. You may know someone like this that's just extra flirty, you know, kind of out there, life of the party, a little suggestive, um, She comes out to him. She's dressed as a prostitute. She's wily of heart. Something that I thought of as I'm looking at this, as she comes out to meet him, as she comes out to seduce him, I couldn't help but notice the the contrast. If if you remember the the story of the prodigal son, remember when the the son, Jesus is telling the story, and the son says, Father, I don't need you. I just want my inheritance. He takes his money. He goes and he blows it all, doing every crazy thing. He ends up uh, working a job feeding pigs. He's so broke and destitute, he wishes he could eat the pig food 
because that would be better than what he has. And he realizes, man, this is so dumb. This is so stupid. I have a father back home who loves me. I should just go. Maybe I could be a, a hired hand for my father. He treats his employees better than I'm being treated here. And so he goes back to his father. And do you remember how the father responds? Is he standing there on the porch crossing his arms going, I figured you'd be back. Does he do anything like that? No. He goes out to meet the prodigal son. He goes out to meet the wayward son, but not like this to seduce him and lead him astray. The father actually hikes up his garments and goes running. He sees him a long ways off, and he goes running out to greet him. He grabs him. He embraces him. He kisses him. He puts the family ring on his finger. He puts a robe on his back. He says, let's get a feast ready. Let's celebrate my son is home. That's how God comes out to greet us. Isn't that a better greeting? Isn't that a better greeting than when sin comes out to seduce us? God has something so much better that he wants for us. Verse 13 is a kind of a transition here in this little exchange in this story with our simple young man. Verse 13, it says, she seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, now the conversation starts. This is where things really change. This now just went from a late night stroll, right, to a conversation with sin. It would have been easy. She comes out. She tries to embrace him. She tries to engage in conversation. What should the response have been? Turn around. Go the other way, right? Walk on by. Don't acknowledge her. Say, hey, thanks, but no thanks. Whatever it is, but he stops and he allows himself to be engaged in conversation. This really changes here. We do this all the time. We begin to reason with our sin. When we begin to reason with our sin, in many cases, we've already lost. You may ask, well, I wonder what kind of videos are on this site. Or you may say, man, I, I noticed somebody liked a picture of me on Facebook when I was on the beach. I wonder what they meant, with, I wonder what they meant by that. So you engage in a conversation. You say, hey, I, I noticed you liked the picture uh, of me on the beach. What, what exactly did you like? Right? We begin to engage in that conversation, and this is a slippery slope. We don't want to stop and talk with our sin. We don't want to try to reason with it. It doesn't make any sense. Back up in chapter 6, verse 27, the, the, the proverb says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? The lesson is, if you're carrying, you know, hey, we should move the campfire from over here to over here. Okay, let me grab these burning logs. What's going to happen? You're going to get burned. What does fire do? It burns. It only makes sense. And so when we, when we allow sin to get close to us, we think, oh, I'll just carry it over here. What's going to happen? We get burned. This is not complicated. It's so simple. But it's so easy to miss. Right? It's so easy to miss. Now, if we flash forward again to Jesus, there's another interesting contrast. You see, Jesus too was tempted. In fact, Jesus went out into the desert at the beginning of his ministry and he fasted for 40 days. He spent time praying and studying Scripture, getting ready for, 
for the ministry that he was about to engage in. And while he was out there, Satan comes out to tempt him very similarly to what we see here in the story. And Satan comes out and he first tempts him by satisfying his hunger. He says, hey, you don't have to be hungry. You've been fasting for 40 days. Wouldn't you like something to eat? He then tempts him uh, to doubt God, and he tempts him to power. He says, I'll give you power. Bow down and worship me. And in each of these cases, Jesus replied by quoting Scripture back to Satan, right? He will not engage in this conversation. He will not try to reason with Satan because sin will not be reasoned with. Instead, he responds by quoting Scripture to Satan. And then he finishes by saying, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Oh, and him only shall you serve. He sends him away. You see the difference between how a fool responds to temptation, begins to reason with it, have a conversation with it, and then how Jesus responds completely differently? He says, no, we're not having a conversation. This is what the Scripture says. I know all about you. Be gone, Satan. I will worship God only. And Paul points out in in Hebrews chapter 12 that in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I I love that. that Paul just kind of points out, uh, you know, and I hear this all the time. I've said this many times, like, man, I'm just really struggling with this sin. Paul's going, really? You're struggling? Like, are you bleeding yet? Then you're not struggling that hard, right? You you haven't resisted to that point. It just kind of points out the foolishness that we uh, interact with our sin. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 14. She says, now here's our conversation that starts. She says, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian Linen, I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. This needs a little bit of explanation. This is maybe the most confusing part. So in verse 14, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. Essentially, the commentators that I read said, basically, there's a big meal ready, right? I had to offer my sacrifices, and now there's a big meal. There's a lot of food left over, a wonderful feast. She's regarding this this religious activity as like you know, no big deal, right? This is, would be kind of like saying, oh, hey, I just had an Easter dinner with my family. We were celebrating the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Want to come up and have some ham and get naked? Like, that's essentially what's going on here. Um, and, uh, you know, the, some commentators say maybe it's a plea for money that she needs to offer these sacrifices, and so she needs some money. But I, I don't really think that's what's going on. I, I think that this is uh, tempting him both with food and sex. Um, I, I get that. <laughs> I, I like food. Um, <laughs> enough of that. Uh, <laughs> verse 15, right, she says, So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. Right? You're special. I've come out to meet you. I was looking for you. What, what was your name again? Right? Do you see the lie there? 
Didn't we just read her feet are always busy? She's in this place and that place. She's seducing men all the time. It's just a bold-faced lie. Oh, man, I was looking for you. She starts to flatter him with her words. I mean, just, I should just point out here, husbands, flatter your wives with your words. Wives, flatter your husbands with your words. There's power in that. Tell your spouse how much they mean to you. Tell them how much you love them. Tell them how wonderful and beautiful they are. Because if you don't, someone else will. It happens all the time. All the time. Flatter your spouse. Don't leave room for those lies to creep in. And then verse 16 and 17, she's talking about her couch and the linens and the, the spices and everything on the bed. This is uh, a show of wealth and comfort. I read that in this time and in this place and culture, most people wouldn't have a couch, that that was a luxury, um, which I thought, that's so bizarre. And, and then I just thought back to my first apartment, and then I was like, no, I get that one too. If somebody's like, hey, come over, I've got a couch, I would be like, Seriously? Like a real couch? I had one, it was, I called it the lowrider couch. Somebody had cut the, I had it like sixth hand or something, like this thing was used upon used. And somebody cut the legs off so it sat way down and all the cushions were worn out so you're basically just on the floor with like the appearance of a couch around you. So if somebody, if somebody invited me over to sit on their couch, I'd be like, that's pretty sweet. Uh, that's cool. So I see how that could be tempting. Let's see. Okay, verse 18, she goes on right? He's still letting her talk. Why is he still letting her go on? I don't know. But she keeps going. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home, right? She promises this pleasure will last as long as it can. The, the explanation there of, of the money bag is to say that because he took a big purse of money, he's got enough to be gone for a long time. He's not going to be back till next month. We've got all the time you want, right? Sin promises uh, what it will never actually be able to deliver. Sin promises what it cannot deliver. It's like the proverbial, you know, carrot on a stick like, oh, it's, it's just right there. It's just a little bit further. And you go a little bit further, only to find that the carrot's moved again. Oh, 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 it's just a little bit further now, though. And just a little bit further. Sin is always progressive. Sin always entices you into more and more, deeper and deeper sin. Sin never actually satisfies, but it always promises satisfaction like drinking salt water when you're thirsty. It just actually leaves you thirstier than when you started. Sin's always you, sin is always drawing you deeper and deeper and deeper. Contrast that with God's promises, which are not empty. God's promises that, that aren't short-term. God doesn't offer a quick fix but he offers real and lasting joy, eternal joy that cannot be taken away from you despite the circumstances you're in. 
It's completely different. The offer is completely different. And in our culture, we're always looking for the quick fix. We're always looking for the satisfaction right now. And that is exactly what sin promises without delivering any kind of real joy. And what God offers is long-term, long-lasting joy. Verse 21, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter or a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know it will cost him his life. After much smooth talk, sin is always smooth talking. He wanders like a clueless animal, right? Like an ox or a stag or a bird. He has no idea what's going. I find it really interesting that it says, all of a sudden. Did you catch that? Or all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. By verse 22, what is so sudden? What is so sudden about this whole conversation, his walk, his late-night stroll to the prostitute street? What is sudden about this process? But this is how this happens, right? You resist temptation right up until you don't. I've heard probably the most common saying we have that, that, uh, that kind of explains this or shows this is, well, one thing led to another. Well, I was just out late, you know, having drinks, and there's this cute girl at a table, and so, you know, it's like no big deal, and so we just started having drinks, and, and a few more, and then we're talking, and man, she was so nice, and then, you know, one thing led to another. It's just like saying all at once. There, there's nothing sudden there. It, this, this is how life works. I don't know if we've realized this or not, but one thing does lead to another, right? It's cause and effect. This is our whole life is like a progression of events happening. All of a sudden is every moment is all of a sudden of something. Like this is, this is not rocket science here. Like of course one thing led to another. One thing always leads to another thing. That's how life works. We don't get to use that as an excuse that's like elementary things that, that we should pick up. And this is the same thing that he says all of a sudden after this whole conversation, all of a sudden. And, and I think, you know, as she's using her seductive speech and, and her smooth talk, her smooth words, of course, where, where else do we see smooth talk enter the equation? With Genesis 3, right? The serpent comes to Eve and seduces her with smooth talk. This is how Satan works, smooth talking all the time. Uh, you know, S Satan is not this fiery monster horned with a pitchfork that Hollywood paints him out to be, right? The Bible describes Satan as, as the most beautiful angel, right? And we see uh, through examples throughout Scripture that, that Satan and, and sin is sweet and seductive, beautiful. Th this lie... That, that we believe that, oh, I, 
I'm not going to be fooled by Satan because when this guy shows up with a red cape and a pitchfork and like fire coming out of the back of his head, I'm going to say, no, I've, I've heard about you, but that's not how it happens. Right? He comes and he seduces. It's beautiful. It sounds great. The food look, or the, the fruit look good to the eye. Like, well, why wouldn't I eat this? Did God really say? Right? He begins to question and doubt. Eve engages in the conversation. It's the same thing that plays out. Satan's been using the same strategy for thousands and thousands of years, and it, and it works just the same with us today as it did then. This is the way that it plays out. So now verse 24. Solomon finishes up. He, he wants to again draw our attention. And now, O oh sons, listen to me. He can tell some of us have already, we've already lost attention, right? We, we've already faded out. I'm sorry, what? That was 23 verses. That was way too much for me to listen to. So he calls us back in again. He says, listen, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. You've got to hear this. Verse 25, let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. His advice here, right, verse 25, let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Stay off the road, right? We talked about this already. Identify those roads and those corners. Know the times of day when you're tempted to sin. And don't go there. Stay off of the road. Don't head to her corner. The end is death. There's a Time Magazine article from a couple months ago. Uh, this is Time Magazine. This is not a Christian publication. And, and our, our wider culture is beginning to realize how dangerous and deadly uh, are the effects of pornography to our culture. Our culture is being, um, you know, exposed to porn like was never physically possible before in the history of mankind. This is new and unique, and culture's beginning to catch up and realize this is not all good. A quote from the article says, a growing number of young men are convinced that their physical, in-person sexual responses have been sabotaged because their brains were virtually marinated in porn when they were adolescents. Their generation has consumed explicit content in the quantities and varieties never before possible on devices designed to deliver content swiftly and privately, all at an age when their brains are more plastic, more prone to permanent change than in later life. These young men feel like unwitting guinea pigs in a largely unmonitored, decade-long experiment in sexual conditioning. People are beginning to wake up and, and say, this is, this is not all good. This is out of control. The Bible's been saying this for a long time, but it's absolutely true. We can completely agree on this, that this is damaging. When, when he says her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death, like this is, this is a real thing. This is really damaging. This is really hazardous. Ray Orland says, people who play with fire inevitably get burned. Fire can only burn. 
I have never heard anyone say to me, Pastor, I committed adultery and I'm so glad I did. My whole life has gotten better. That was the best decision I ever made. But I have heard people say, if only I could go relive that moment, if only I could go back and change what I did. The pain is inevitable. That's from a pastor who's had to walk people through this many, many times. Families, marriages, careers, reputation, health, these are all sacrifices we make on the altar of sexual immorality. When we engage in sexual immorality, we, we begin to sacrifice everything. We know that this is something we're worshiping as a God when we're willing to give up other things for it. And that's what we do when we engage in this. And in exchange, we get shame, disgrace, loneliness, stress, ruin, divorce. And I'm sure we've probably all heard the stories of people who, after being caught in affairs or, or things like that, they literally commit suicide, ending in death. This happens. This warning is life and death. Life and death of your marriage, life and death maybe even of you, your person. That's why he wants you to hear this. Solomon wanted his sons to hear this, and he wants everyone to hear this. Whether you're Christian or not, you've got to hear this. This is not just a Christian issue. This is a mankind issue. This matters that we hear this, that we respond. So what do we do now? Well, clearly... This is a warning to every one of us, right? It's a, it's a warning to all of us to just say, I, I need to wake up. I need to evaluate some of my relationships maybe. I need to evaluate my time on the Internet. I need to evaluate the kinds of videos I'm watching. How are these things leading me? Where are they leading my heart? Am I engaging in conversation with my sin, trying to reason with it? Or am I sending it away as Jesus did? And, and this... This is a call to repentance for some. I have no doubt that in this room are some that need to hear this and repent, to turn away from your sins and turn toward Jesus. Some of you may be engaged in an affair right now. Some of you are engaged in an addiction to porn right now. Some of you are engaged in any other form of sexual immorality right now, and this is a call to repentance. And no matter what you've been involved with, there's a reality here which is we all have been unfaithful to Jesus. The Bible uses frequently and repeatedly the comparison of the relationship between Jesus and His church as that of a, 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 a groom and his bride right? A husband and his wife. And we as the bride of Christ have all been unfaithful to Jesus in one degree or another. Here's the good news. I want you to hear this, right? Listen up. This is on the final. I want you to hear this, everyone, Christian or not. I need you to hear this. This is the good news. That word gospel that we say all the time, 
The word gospel, it just, it's a translate, to translate it, it, it just means good news, right? Here's the good news. Jesus died so that you don't have to. Jesus died on the cross so that you don't have to die in your sins of sexual immorality or any other kind. That's the good news. This doesn't have to lead to death. This isn't a sad story. This is a call to repentance and a glorious story, a happy story. Romans 5.19 says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, this is Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, saying that by pointing out what sin is, we see how big it is, right? The law came in that sin may increase, that we may see it for what it is. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our sin causes death, but Jesus' death causes life. Jesus died on the cross, and when we believe in him, when we put our faith in him, he forgives us our sins. He does what we call the great exchange. Jesus takes all our sin to the cross on himself, and he gives us instead his righteousness. So no matter what sins of sexual immorality or any other kind I bring to the table, Jesus says, let me take those from you and instead take my perfect obedience. So where we have sat and reasoned with our sin, we give that to Jesus. And where he sent Satan and sin away, we get to take that on as our own. We now stand before God as believers in Jesus Christ. God sees us clothed in Jesus' righteousness, in, in his obedience, in his sinlessness. You see how wonderful, how glorious this is? We don't have to be defined by our sin anymore. This sin doesn't have to lead to death. But when we repent to turn away from our sin, we turn towards Jesus. It's forgiven. He takes the penalty for that, and he gives us life, life eternal. Not that fleeting promise that sin offers, but real, lasting joy. Right? This is why we take communion every week to remember Jesus' body that was broken, his blood that was spilled, the work he did so that we may be made righteous. Let me just say these last few words. Sin preys on the simple. Jesus gives wisdom. Sin entices you down the street, not telling you at the end waits death. Jesus, carrying his own cross, walked the road to Golgotha, knowing that death awaits. He does that walk for us. Sin comes out to meet you, to seduce you, and to take something from you. Jesus runs to you while you're still a long way out. He comes to embrace you, to restore you, and to give you an inheritance. Sin promises to have made her sacrifices today. Jesus is the sacrifice made for you today. Sin has perfumed her bed and covered it in fine linens. Jesus' body was wrapped in linen and perfumes when they laid him in the grave. Sin offers momentary pleasure. Jesus gives lasting joy. Sin leads to death, and Jesus gives us life. Let me pray. 
Jesus, I am so grateful for your word. I'm so grateful, God, for this warning, this call to repentance. God, to not be like the simple, but to see sin for what it is, to flee from it, to run from it. But God, if I can just speak honestly, I've messed up. We've messed up. God, we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of your glory. God, we have all turned away. We have all engaged in sin. God, we need more than just the advice on how to avoid sin. God, we need forgiveness for the sin we've already committed. Jesus, we need forgiveness for the sins that we're still going to commit even though we should know better. God, I thank you for your death on the cross, your burial, your resurrection. God, I thank you that you offer the forgiveness we need. Freely, God, you come to us. We don't need to, we don't need to do anything to earn it. God, you've done everything that's required and you offer it to us as a gift. God, would we be humble enough to receive that? In Jesus' name, amen.